you are listening to Ecojustice Radio from the KPFK Los Angeles studio. A project of SoCal 350 Climate Action, our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and on today's show we are discussing palm oil, the oily truth, and what we can do. Our guest is Dr. Gary Shapiro, president of Orangutan Republic Foundation and the Orangutan Project USA. Dr. Shapiro has dedicated most of his life to understanding and supporting the well-being of individuals and populations of critically endangered orangutans through research, conservation, advocacy, and education. He is perhaps best known as the first person to teach sign language to orangutans in their natural environment, the forests of Borneo. He has been supporting orangutan and rainforest survival and villager livelihood through the various organizations he has created and administered, including the Orangutan Republic Foundation, of which he is the president. Welcome, listeners. This is Ecojustice Radio. Palm oil, touted as, quote, a miracle ingredient, is found in more than 50% of all packaged products consumed in the United States. It makes makeup smooth, it keeps ice cream from melting, and it moisturizes our hair and our skin. When cultivated, it offers a greater yield at a lower cost of production and uses less land than other vegetable oils. It is extremely versatile in its uses. It's a hot commodity. And it gives rise to mass plantations in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. At 66 million tons annually and 10% of the permanent global cropland, palm oil is a prevalent, economically appealing crop. But how would you know? It's not always clearly labeled in the products we purchase, known by at least 40 different ingredient names. Although popular, the cultivation and expansion of this supposed cash crop can come at the expense of the indigenous people, critical habitat, endangered species, and the climate. Almost 90% of the world's oil palm is grown on a few islands in Malaysia and Indonesia, home to the most biodiverse tropical forests found on Earth. Vast monoculture palm oil plantations bring with them the clear-cutting and burning of forests, resulting in the major release of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions. In addition, peatlands in Asia are drained, cleared, and burned for palm oil development. These wetlands store more carbon per unit area than any other ecosystem in the world, and when disturbed, one hectare can release the carbon equivalent of burning one tanker truck full of gasoline. Community farmers are incentivized and sometimes forced into these intensive monoculture methods. However, if the market drops, this singular cultivation could throw them into financial bankruptcy. These methods also give away to soil pollution, erosion, water and air contamination. When the forests are cleared, it results in the forced migration of animals and increased human-wildlife interaction and conflict. Expansion can mean the destruction of the only habitat of the orangutans, Sumatran tigers and rhinos, and the Borneo elephants and many more animals. Generations of family farms and indigenous people who inhabit and protect the land have been brutally driven from it. 
So when I'm taking a shower, brushing my teeth, putting on lipstick, washing my clothes, maybe toasting some bread or relaxing after a day of work with, hey, a piece of chocolate and a lit candle, my first thoughts are not how have these products contributed to the warming of the planet or the destruction of the rainforest habitats or the potential murder of orangutans or the dissolving of indigenous livelihoods or even maybe the increase in waste. Yes, this is a zero waste issue because people can no longer farm their own food, forcing them into situations where they have to buy packaged goods. I don't think of these issues all the time. Many of us don't. But maybe we should. Major corporations are internalizing the profits while externalizing the impacts, relying on consumers to be unaware or unable to buy alternatives. There are many nonprofit agencies, community-led groups, and businesses that are working to change this reality. Can palm oil be produced in a responsible, sustainable, and regenerative manner that protects the environment, biodiverse species, and communities where it is cultivated? This is a special Encore presentation with Dr. Shapiro and our discussion of what is happening in Indonesia and elsewhere around palm oil extraction, expansion, and exploitation. Our guest has been involved with orangutans for 46 years and has been working tirelessly to secure and protect orangutan populations. It is my honor to welcome our guest, Dr. Shapiro, President of Orangutan Republic Foundation and the Orangutan Project USA. Welcome to Eco-Justice Radio. Well, thank you for having me today. Yes, this is going to be a great show and so much so much information to learn here. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the purpose of the Orangutan Republic Foundation and the Orangutan Project USA. Well, the Orangutan Republic Foundation has a mission of saving wild orangutans through education. I should only point out that Previously, I worked with an organization that did the entire gamut of work, conservation, rehabilitation, uh, research, as well as education. But education always seemed to take a back seat. It always seemed to be the last thing people considered. And yet, we understand that it's truly the key to long-term success when it comes to issues like conservation. So my wife and I in 2004 decided to create this new organization with the purpose of saving orangutans, which are critically endangered now throughout the range, through education and other innovative collaborative projects. So we have that extra at the end of the mission. That allows us to go beyond education and into other areas, which is why we work with the Orangutan Project which does a full scope of conservation-related activities throughout the entire range of orangutans, supporting dozens of organizations. What are some of those projects? Well, we do. We support uh, the reintroduction of orangutans to their areas where they can wander around. We, We don't put them back into their wild populations because it's been decided that, you know, the genetic input of these individuals or Maybe the, some of the culture they learn with the humans should not be put back into the wild. And there's disease and health issues as well that we're concerned about. But reintroduction of orangutans, certainly protecting wild areas that are under threat. And we do so many more things, but these are the primary things we do. What does the word orangutan mean and what is the significance of orangutans to the Indonesian people? Well, the word orangutan 
literally comes from the Malay uh, person, orang, and hutan, which means forest. So it's a, it's a hybrid word, and it literally means person of the forest. And there are many uh, indigenous people of Indonesia, on Sumatra and Borneo, where they're found, that see them as another tribe of people. And just shorter and with longer arms and live in the trees. But many of them have origin stories that involve uh, orangutans. And uh, there's another saying that orangutans don't speak because if they did, people would put them to work. (laughs) And this is kind of a part of the um, notion that they're very, very smart. In fact, they are very smart, very intelligent uh, animals um, for problem solving. And they have a theory of mind. They understand what you're thinking about sometimes. They can predict what you're going to do. They recognize their image in a mirror. And, you know, they're part of the larger family of great apes that include the chimpanzee, bonobo, and gorilla. So uh, collectively, we're all great apes uh, under the biological. genetic identity. Genetically, we share 97% of our genes with orangutans. And um, I've gotten to know many of them over the course of my life. And I find them to be very noble and uh, inspiring uh, individuals. Where are they native to? Well, they're currently native to the islands of Borneo, uh, which is in Indonesia and Malaysia, and also on the island of Sumatra, which is totally managed by Indonesia. And what kind of territory do they need in order to survive? Because if we move them to another part of the country, then that might not... Right. be uh, sustainable for their livelihood. We, we we would like to keep them on their current islands. There have been talks about moving them off, but they prefer living in tropical rainforests. Typically, they have higher densities in the lowlands, in the peat swamp forests and in the lowland forests, diptocarp forests. And as we move uh, higher in altitude, their densities start to fall. But they're located in a number of metapopulations or subpopulations uh, on both of these islands. On Sumatra, they're, they're notably uh, located in the northern part of the island. They used to range throughout Sumatra, but were wiped out prehistorically. And today we have uh, two species actually living on the northern part of Sumatra, Pongo ebali and Pongo tapanuliensis, newly described just a few years ago. And all of these species, including the Borneans, are considered critically endangered. And that area that they are currently residing in is also an area known for the development of palm oil. Very true. So what is palm oil? And where are these palm oil plantations? Well, palm oil is a, an amazing, uh, fascinating plant. It's, um, it's a palm that originated from West Africa. Lea skiniensis is its species name, and it was brought to Indonesia by the Dutch hundreds of years ago to be part of their colonialization and the agricultural programs that they set up uh, way back when. And over the years, it remained a very kind of a nascent um, crop. It wasn't grown in great abundance, but I witnessed how this all changed when I was out in Indonesia where illegal logging was the main threat to the habitat. And then in the late 1980s, early 1990s, there started to be a shift and there was a movement to start changing the agriculture and to make a, a national plan to actually grow 
palm oil. And we saw over a period of time the conversion of rainforest into palm oil plantations, large-scale agriculture. So the plant has been brought in. It is a, a, a tree that will last about 30 years in its life cycle. It uh, will produce anywhere from 3 uh, to 10 tons of fruit per hectare per year. And, and so it's, it's, it's actually a very uh, highly high-yielding plant when it comes to vegetable oil production. And as you mentioned before, it's very diverse in what you can do with palm oil. Everything from you know candles to shampoos to ice cream to the crisps that you eat, and Crisp, of course, chi- like chips, like chips. They call them crisps <laughs> overseas, yeah. And the other big thing, of course, is biofuel. That's another yeah. controversial topic that we can talk about. That's a large, yeah. We'll get into that too because it's even a larger sum of the amount of palm oil that's used is actually going into the biofuels. Exactly. Uh, so the habitat that the palm oil does well in mm-hmm. is the same habitat that the orangutan does well in. So I am assuming, as we already know, that the orangutan is being um, negatively affected by the by the development of these palm oil plantations, correct? That's correct. That's correct. And, you know, I should point out, apart from orangutans, there are also many more species. As you know, the rainforests of Indonesia are some of the most biodiverse in the world. Um, Sumatra, of course, not, not just orangutans, but we have elephants, Sumatran elephants, Sumatran rhinoceros, and tigers. And they all, in one area, coexist. So, Clearly, these are the charismatic megafauna that most people will recognize. But there are also millions of other species, mostly insects, that perform important ecological roles in all aspects of the rainforest uh, ecosystem. So we have to remember that uh, it's not just orangutans that are being threatened, but since we are so much like them, we identify with them if we save orangutans, we can save rainforests as well. And that's really part of the key of doing this. Dr. Shapiro, we just talked about palm oil and the um, connection with the biodiverse environment mm-hmm. that is there. When we, as consumers, we, we know palm oil by palm oil. Flip over the product and it sure. says palm oil on the container. But it also can go by many different names. So what are some of the most common products or even some of the products that – People might not even think have palm oil in them. And what are some of the, I mean, there's over 40 names, but what are some of the names that might be familiar to people that are actually palm oil, but maybe they don't know it's palm oil? Well, it's, that's a great question. And in fact, um, when you stop to think about it, uh, palm oil is a feedstock that goes into the olean industry where they can do all kinds of things to it and create numerous products, thousands of actual ingredients that you may never recognize originated with palm oil. I'm holding a list of the the 25 top ones. And people may, if you ever looked at a bottle of shampoo and you looked at the ingredients and you see sodium lauryl sulfate, that is from palm oil. I never knew that. And if you ever see the term palm something like palmic acid or palmitate or palmate or palm stearine or palm kernel oil, these are also forms of palm oil. And and so you can hydrogenate it, you can treat it in different ways chemically to create thousands and thousands of different products. In fact, this is why it is such a versatile oil. 
It has amazing properties that allow for the creaminess and skippy peanut butter. It allows for, uh, you know, products to remain on the store shelves longer because of the antioxidant qualities. So there's some good properties to this particular oil. The big problem, of course, is how it's grown and how it's impacted the environment. And this is what we really want to work on and how do we deal with this. Yeah, it can even be in construction material like like plywood, uh, the glues in plywood and stuff like that. Absolutely. I mean, like you mentioned, WWF uh, estimated that over 50% of the products you might find in a grocery store has palm oil in it in some form. I've got another list in front of me here of it's a, hundreds, it's a massive list. Hundreds of names that you would never recognize as oh being gosh. originating from palm oil. And this is just probably the tip of the iceberg as oh well. My there's gosh. probably this is like four hundred. But I've heard there's over a thousand. So when you realize also that you may not even know that something that can be turned extended from extended shea butter? It's on the list. That's on the list. Now here's the other complicating problem. Some of these things could be made by other oils as well. So when you see this, you don't know the source material. That complicates understanding really the chain of custody of what has gone into the product, where it actually comes from. But it just, again, it's, it makes it so that the consumer has a major challenge to try to do the due diligence to rec- recognize that the products they buy may or may not have palm oil in it. Is there a resource for that? It's, there are resources you can buy or you, resources you can download, like uh, apps that can kind of give you guidance when you go shopping, whether this is a safe product or not. may not have the actual listing of ingredients in it, but some of these organizations, so for example, Cheyenne Mountain Zoo is, a, is one of the better ones that has really worked hard to improve their app and to add more and more products to it. But in doing so, what they're able to allow the consumer to do is to buy smart, yeah. shop smart. And I think that's the power that we have to con- to really kind of reel in the industry and hold them accountable. And we're going to get into um, later in this conversation, the RSPO, which is an organization or a, a certification mm-hmm. of sorts that helps to try to get to what might be perceived as sustainable, quote, sustainable palm oil. But before we get there, how is palm oil currently planted and managed? And um, what is the effect on the environment? You were talking about the effect on the environment, the biodiversity, mm-hmm. and and this this concept of creating ecological deserts. Yeah, yeah. Well, I should point out, first of all, the industry is a major employer. Three and a half million Indonesians and Malaysians work in the palm oil sector. So it's not, a, it's not really a, an industry that is small scale or is inconsequential to the livelihood of millions of people. Now, knowing that, we can also say that 40% of the palm oil coming out of Malaysia and Indonesia are from small holders. These are farmers who have maybe 20 to 30 hectares of private land in which they cultivate. Um, and the biggest problems that we face are not from the small holders, but from the multinationals and others who have spent millions of dollars or billions of dollars collectively uh, putting in large estate plantations that take up thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hectares of nothing but monoculture, nothing but oil palm. Mm-hmm. 
And those are the ecological deserts that we can talk about because you have virtually no life that live in these forests or in these plantations. Other once than, they're cultivated? Yes, right. once they're cultivated, they basically displaced uh, the wildlife that used to live there. And what you wind up having are insects and maybe some cattle grazing underneath, but you won't find very many other creatures. And, you know, these small farmers, too, are incentivized to switch over to creating palm oil, which you don't eat, per se. It's not it's correct. And, and then they're being told to do monoculture, which is one product versus a polyculture situation where you would be able to do palm oil and maybe other food that you can eat and create your own substance. This is detrimental to the farmers, correct? Describe that. It can be very detrimental because um, when palm oil's prices drop, as it has dropped, um, those farmers who invest now completely in converting their polyculture into monoculture palm oil, they wind up not being able to eat their fruits when the prices drop and they can't earn any money. They are forced into other ways of trying to make ends meet. So it's really hard on the families. You know, many of these children that live in these farm areas, the children of farmers. I mean, many of them are actually working in the fields rather than going to school. This has been a big problem in areas where palm oil is cultivated by smallholders. And it's one of the, one of the areas that um, the government is slowly addressing and the palm oil industry is slowly addressing. But there's so many areas that are so far removed at the perimeter of these plantations where local people can't even get to the schools. The children, you know, may be cut off because of just the roads aren't very good and, and the weather can be bad and they're stuck at home. They, they don't get a good education. So one of the things that we do is help provide opportunities for the kids to do either after school or reading ex exercises in these reading houses that we're setting up mm. uh, in these villages. So the smallholders, again, 40% of palm oil, uh, they're being incentivized to convert to monoculture. And what we try to do is keep them uh, with a polyculture model and provide... We through uh, your organization. Yes, the Orangutan Republic Foundation and our partners in Sumatra. So we ourselves don't do the, the work in the, in the field. We support and we, we build organizations and support these organizations of Indonesian people, uh, educators, to go out into the villages and into the perimeter of the park to do the work that needs to be done. And, you know, we're talking about, this brings up even another point in that we're, we're talking about the uprooting of the ecosystem and the species who live there. We're talking about the, the farmers mm -hmm. who are going to a monoculture and they're, they're affecting their sustainability, in essence, of their own substance of life. Um, but there's also the overall indigenous people who are part of that, that those species that are being uprooted. Um, and their land is sometimes being stolen uh, is, is or nationalized, I guess. Is this legal? And what is the government doing about that? Well, I think the nationalization took place years ago. Okay. This was something that um, is now being redressed by um, lawsuits and by a decree by the, Consta, the um, Supreme Court in Indonesia. Many of these traditional native lands, which, which were 
taken away in a sense because once they were uh, gazetted and somebody now could go ahead and, and buy and sell. And frequently the local people, that many of them, uh, the, the indigenous Dayak people of Borneo, for example, weren't sophisticated enough to understand how this worked. And so many of them were swindled away of their uh, native lands. More complicated is when uh, the government and maybe some of the um, armed forces that sometimes work to uh, provide security for the palm oil plantations can put pressure on the local people to give up their land, to sell it to the company. And there are numerous examples of this happening, more, more frequently on Borneo than on Sumatra, but it does happen on Sumatra as well. So again, this is a kind of a mosaic of, of problems, of, of the rights of people to make sure they can hold on to their land, to avoid being pressured, not just by the government and the military or some of the paramilitary that work there, but even by their own people in the villages that will sign away their land and then try to convince others to do the same. And of course, these companies will offer them things besides money, you know, telephones and refrigerators, uh, you know, appliances just to improve their way of life. And, and so frequently, after a period of time, they get worn down and eventually they'll, they'll sign. So it's, it is one of those challenges to um, hold on to your uh, inheritance, something you could then pass down to your kids. And once you sign that away, you've lost that. And many of these people regret signing away their land to the, comp to the company so they can extend their monoculture. So uh, it, is a, it is a real challenge to um, do this kind of work in the field and to help local people do better on their land, to show them that they can actually improve their livelihood by moving from chemical to organic fertilizers and other ways of doing polyculture so they can have a backup crop or several backup crops, crops they can eat or they can sell when the price of palm oil drops. It's really important to um, build trust in these villages, and that's what we've been doing over the years, getting to know the leadership, getting to know key um, people in the villages who can help um, leverage our efforts to, to make things happen. Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco-Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco-Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. Today, you are listening to a special encore presentation of our interview with Dr. Gary Shapiro, President of Orangutan Republic Foundation and the Orangutan Project USA, discussing palm oil, the oily truth, and what we can do. I have personal experience uh, traveling to Honduras, and I saw how numerous communities uh, were uprooted to make way for palm oil plantations. They are, they are uprooted, and then they are displaced, and they're forced into smaller shared regions. So all these different types of communities are kind of they're, – they're forced to share the same space with each other. Uh, their food source, uh, as we've been talking about, their food source is taken away because they can no longer have the land to be able to farm upon it. 
and they can either work for the the plantation or travel elsewhere and make money doing something else. And the grocery stores are hours away. So these multinational junk food kiosks that are ran by PepsiCo or Coca-Cola pop up in these new small, we'll call them towns. And these indigenous populations, they, they used to be, they, they were used to living off the land, and now they're being forced to buy these sugar drinks and these diabetic-causing goodies. And all of this material that they're buying, which they've never had before, is non-recyclable and non-compostable packages. So they're just the cookies and the candy bars and sodas and whatever. This ends up as a waste project that they never had to deal with, nor do they have the convenient infrastructure, the waste infrastructure, to even handle it. So when you're busing through these areas or staying in these areas, as I did, they're burning it. And you're breathing this in. They're breathing this in on a consistent basis, the toxins from these plastics, from this packaging. And this is inherently the cause and effect of palm oil, these plantations. So this is a zero-waste issue, in my opinion. I would venture to say if someone is trying to even lead a zero-waste lifestyle, the purchasing of products from monocrop plantations like palm oil, and I will even say it soy, is in opposition of that philosophy unless there is equitable means of substance, including the ability for these indigenous groups to be able to grow their own food. Versus just working for the palm oil plantation and then turning around and buying the products that will eventually kill them that are filled with palm oil. Mm-hmm. Have you had that same yeah, experience? <laughs> um, you know, you could probably replicate so much of what you said in places around the world where palm oil is grown. Not just palm oil, too. I mean, you could probably look at many of the commodities um, that are grown where the local people don't even have a chance to enjoy Say for cacao production in Africa, for example, that's another one where the local people are are really um, put at odds with uh, a future that it looks looks good for them because they wind up exporting these these commodities and not able to enjoy them themselves um, mm-hmm. and paid so little for the work they do. Um, Coconuts. Coconuts. Coconuts I mean, is a huge one. I'm being in Central America, they didn't even eat when I was there in the areas that we, we were in. It cost them more to eat their own coconuts than to go and to harvest them and sell them to to mass. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of a upside down situation with many of the people in in the producing world where we enjoy the benefits when we go to Whole Foods, we go shopping, we get this bounty of food from around the world, but we don't recognize that many of the people who grow it don't get the same benefits of, of, a, of a fair exchange. And so they wind up being marginalized many times. Many of these people who work for the plantations are in debt because what they do is they offer them loans. They offer them ways to get that motorbike or this, but then they have to pay it back. And because they don't get paid that much for their their work and, you know, interest rates are high, they wind up owing money throughout their lives. And many get despondent. Many of them commit suicide. It's a really challenging problem on how do we in the West as consumers kind of wrap our minds around this and recognize that we have, I think, a a social and a moral obligation to understand this complete life cycle and to understand the people who are involved in producing what we 
take for granted is going to be available at our stores. Yeah, it's a it's a new age form of slave labor. It is, and we we sanitize it. Uh, we make it look exotic. We 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 look through filters, and we don't actually go out there and see with our own eyes what damage is being done by this palm oil plantation, or what's being done as the people are having to deal with the runoff of all this nutrient and poisoning their waters. And, of course, governments don't want to showcase that side of it. You can understand why. But at the same time, it's important that local people, conservationists in places like Indonesia, stand up, speak out, and bring about change. And so it's not us from the West telling them and dictating what they should do, but it's the local people themselves standing up in courts of law or in community arenas or on television, articulating what we already know, but is so hard to translate and get to the the masses in these countries. So this is part of what we're trying to do. We're, we're helping to build a cadre of conservation educators and conservationists in Indonesia with our organization. We give out scholarships to students who are going to university in the fields of biology, forestry, and veterinary science. And we've already graduated 104 of them at this point in time. We've given out 172 multi-year scholarships for these students that come from the range provinces where orangutans are found. So this is called the Orangutan Caring Scholarship. We started it back in 2006, and I'm so proud that we've grown it every year. And we have now four different provinces where we're giving out scholarships. We're working with three organizations now. Next year, we're going to start with a fourth organization covering the last major province where orangutans are found. And I'm just really, really proud of this program, and I hope it will continue because we're seeing a lot of these graduates going off and becoming activists, becoming educators, becoming influencers in Indonesia, becoming advocates for the orangutan. And that's really, really big because when I was first starting out, people would look at an orangutan and think of it as a clown. They would see it like a a performing animal in a circus. And now they're understanding them as being the, the gardeners of the rainforest and seeing them in a more majestic way. And that's really the way people should see them. And we can talk more about how they can do this. But anyway, yeah. When we talk about conservation, this isn't just about the orangutans and the land and the indigenous people, but the overall effect, too, is climate disruption. That's correct. And so how is palm oil connected to climate disruption? It's it's connected in a big way, especially when we're going into the peatlands. And we talked about peatlands before. Now, remember, peat is a amazing material. Peat is really the biomass of fallen leaves and branches that do not decompose completely. They fall into the forest floor. They wind up piling on top of each other. Because it's so acidic and it's waterlogged, it does not break down. It essentially stays in place, and it can stay in place for thousands of years. And so as peat bogs start to build and start creating what they call a lens, which can be up to 20 meters thick, There is so much carbon stored in the peat that when somebody comes in and tries to drain it, thinking they can now do agriculture on it, the oxygen comes in, all this biomass starts to oxidize, starts to give out the carbon dioxide as the bacteria start to go to work. And then if somebody lights a fire, 
the fire goes inside of the peat bogs or into the peat itself and may burn for decades. Oh, my God. Smoldering, just like a cigarette will smolder. And it becomes almost impossible, even during the rains, to put this stuff out because it's so deep underground. But the drainage of the of the peat bogs or the peat swamps to create agriculture is one of the biggest mistakes that anybody can make. And we are working with groups that are putting in dams and rehabilitating formerly drained peat areas so they can become wet again and do their ecological function. So, because I've heard that it's it's almost impossible to restore a peat land, peat, a peat bog, back to its glory days. And can they avoid using the peat land? Yes, yes, they for, can. For, I mean, and I don't think we made it completely clear, but the palm oil plantations are coming into the areas where the peat bogs are. They're destroying that area and they're they're planting the plantation. Well, they're no longer allowed to do that under government law of Indonesia under the RSPO. Which is recent. They, they recently passed this two years ago. They passed another principle and criteria. No peat, no um, deforestation, and no exploitation. And no fire, of course, has been on the books for a while. But again, while those are in the RSPO principles and criteria, the government themselves has already said we should not go into peat. And this is the Minister of Forestry and Environment. She said this now, and it's on the books. But the big problem is there's a difference between what is legal and what is official. Hmm. <laughs> what happens in those outer islands away from Jakarta that cannot be monitored easily or that can be hidden um, sometimes do the, the things that should not be done. With the climate disruption issues, there has been major fires, floods. They're losing islands. I know that they're looking at moving Jakarta, the capital. Describe some of the things that are happening uh, in Indonesia. Maybe people don't understand that there has been fires that have been continuously raging. We hear about what's happening in Australia, but Mm -hmm. this is happening in Indonesia. Well, years ago, we would be concerned because fires happen every year um, through the slash and burn horticulture that the local uh, indigenous people do. But normally, if the, there's enough rainfall, these don't get out of hand. They, they burn a field, they, they rotate it, they move to another area, they come back later and they plant. But It with, still causes air and water quality issues, though. Not as much as what you would you would be led to believe by the big monoculturists that blame the local dyaks for the the problem because finger pointing goes on and collectively of course it makes no difference all this adds to the air pollution the point being is that in recent years because of climate change we're finding that these dry el nino periods are becoming less predictable and dry periods are becoming the norm so like 2019 we had a terrible fire year. And orangutans were being killed. Wildlife was being threatened in in major ways. Air pollution was affecting the health of millions of people and and moving out of the region to places like Singapore and Kuala Lumpur. And so it's, it's something that the government is taking seriously. But unfortunately, not enough is done to bring in the assets during the rainy uh, during the, the fire season because you know they just don't have a, a fire hydrant in the middle of the rainforest they have to bring in the supplies and the and the equipment to go into these forest areas to put out these these uh, brush fires so it becomes very problematic and again getting back to the issue of climate change when you start to burn a peatland you're releasing 
so much more carbon than you would just by the above-ground trees that you might see burning like in, say, uh, Australia. You get into those peat seams that can go very deep, and you're, re- you're releasing three, four, five times more carbon um, than you would otherwise. So it becomes um, a major contributor the, to the quote the global was, greenhouse emissions. The one tanker for every hectare, it's one tanker truck full of gasoline. That is that is conservative. That's conservative. That is so conservative wow. because you're literally dealing with hundreds of thousands of pounds of carbon. When gasoline goes, it goes quickly, okay? But the carbon's not matched. It's matched up. When you look at the amount of carbon from peat, you're really dealing um, with hundreds of thousands, say, with one one meter deep, 200,000 pounds of carbon, whereas for a truck full of gasoline, it's 80,000 pounds, 80,000 pounds of gasoline. Mm. But it goes off very quickly with high energetics. When, when the peat is burning, it's burning for a long period of time. And it may take, like I said, years to go through an area because it just smolders. But once it's cleared and the oxygen gets in there, that carbon will be released. And it's, uh, it's, it's very, very devastating. Oh. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco-Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to EcoJustice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. Today, you are listening to a special encore presentation of our interview with Dr. Gary Shapiro, president of Orangutan Republic Foundation and the Orangutan Project USA, discussing palm oil, the oily truth, and what we can do. So, Dr. Shapiro, we've gone through a lot of the issues here, and there are a couple more if we have time I want to touch upon, like child labor issues and what is extinction and are we facing that with some of the orangutans. But before we get to that, because we keep kind of teasing upon it, we need some some solutions here because it's been a little, you know, this is, this is heavy. This is a lot yeah. of information that I didn't know that I'm assuming a lot of the listeners don't know, and we want to do something about this. So, is there such thing as sustainable palm oil, or is it better to avoid it altogether? What is the RSPO? What's happening? Well, that's a great question because um, I get this asked a lot. Uh, there are people who are very skeptical about the term sustainability. But I'd like to point out sustainability is like, like democracy or liberty. It is, it is an aspiration. Hmm. It's, it, is, it is a direction we should be trying to get to. We, we're not there yet, even though we have a system in place that is working to certify uh, growers, millers, and everybody in the supply chain. Uh, we're working towards getting products labeled so that when somebody buys it, they can feel good that this product is not going to be destructive to the rainforest or to orangutans or to other species. But it's not perfect, and there's no system that is perfect. However, it is the best process going forward right now. So our organization is actually a voting member on the roundtable on sustainable palm oil. I just got back from a conference in Bangkok, uh, Thailand, where we went through another iteration of the processes that we do. Last year, it was a big change because we brought in those new 
principles and criteria. The ones about the pet land. Right. And... No peat, no deforestation, no exploitation. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do is make it very, very clear that um, this, this product is not going to go away. Even if we boycott it, it will find its place in our products. Like I said, you're not going to be able to read and know that that has palm oil in it. It is so ubiquitous in what we consume. And if we don't purchase it here, it'll go to India and China and will go into biofuel. So the idea is that we got to continue to tame the industry through working together and making sure that we make the uh, product more and more uh, accountable, at least the, the RSPO more accountable, that we make the term sustainable more stringent. What's RSPO? The Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. Okay. Again, it, it, it started out as a, um, um, a voluntary pro- program set up by WWF and a World couple of- World Wildlife Foundation. Exactly. Along with some of the uh, palm oil companies, some of the bigger ones at the time. But it's now over 2,000 members. And the environmental NGOs like us, um, we actually have a very strong voice. We make a difference in the dialogue. So it's important to have critics on the outside yeah. who are questioning the efficacy of the RSPO. And there are reports that are produced by some of the major organizations like Greenpeace yeah. that call to question. And they call it a woefully substandard. Why is that? What well, are their concerns? The big concerns are that despite um, what we're doing, there are still holes in the system. Um, for example, there was a report uh, in Manga Bay where they talked about um, even the Indonesian government audit found that the majority of palm oil plantations operating in the country are in breach in a range of regulations, 81% of them. And this is the government doing an audit on their own plantations. They include the lack of permits, encroachment into protected areas, noncompliance with national sustainability standards. So the government of Indonesia and Malaysia have the Indonesian sustainable palm oil and the Malaysian sustainable palm oil standards. And these are two nations that have said, we're going to have our own sustainability standards, right? Along with the RSPO, which is voluntary. So collectively, there are these systems that are trying to keep the industry moving in the right direction. And even the government of Indonesia have found lack of compliance for so many different things. Also, this government needs to be serious about cracking down on these companies, some of which are owned by top government officials. So when you when you find that you have a system where many in the government are actually owners of these corporations, it makes it very problematic to address them with the right level of resources to do the enforcement. Mm-hmm. And this is the big challenge for a country like Indonesia, the fourth largest country in the world, one that is also uh, moving forward uh, with their population. They're going to overtake the United States population-wise very, very soon. And it's a country that I feel very strongly about. I'm, I'm In my heart, I'm Indonesian in many, many ways, and I've been there for so many years. So I really want to help Indonesia as well as the local people move this concept of sustainability in the right direction. And I think the RSPO is one of the best vehicles for doing that, even though it's got problems. And mm-hmm. like I said... Nothing is perfect. Our democracy is not perfect, and we need to keep working on it as we're doing now. 
And I, I know there are some um, – we only have 10 minutes left here, so I know we can't get too terribly deep in it. But there are the human rights issues, the sure. child labor issues that um, – you know, the stuff that's happening at the ground level that that needs to still be worked through on the RSPO. And I'll, I'll let, you, let you know they actually created a university within the RSPO so that smallholders can get educated on all of these issues, including childhood labor. And other aspects, you can actually go online to rspo.org and start to look at some of the curriculum that's being created. And it's, it's one of the most exciting things because the last couple of uh, RSPO meetings have really addressed the smallholder issue. And I think there's been an increased effort on part of the RSPO to take this, this task on. So it's not just about the big plantations now. They're trying to address the needs of the smallholders because they would like to get a better price for their products. They would like to be able to be seen as sustainable, but they may not be able to afford the certification that the big players can do because it costs money to get certified with the auditors and everything else that goes out there. Uh, Even getting the label on the packaging has to be paid for. It's one of the reasons why you may not see the RSPO label on products on the store shelves. So how does then the consumer navigate all Mm -hmm. these products? It makes it problematic, and that's Mm -hmm. why some of these downloadable apps are very useful. And if we're trying to save the smaller farmers and do polyculture and not focus on the large corporate businesses that are, um, you know, doing all this monoculture and affecting the human and environmental issues or be the effect of Mm -hmm. those issues – but we're not able to support support the smaller farmers and, you know, we're going for sustainable palm oil, certified sustainable palm oil, but we're supporting the Nestle's and the PepsiCo's of the world. That 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 can be an issue, as you yeah. were saying. What are your thoughts on using palm oil for biofuels? And the EU mandates that the blending of biofuels in their, their motor, ve- motor vehicle fuels. Um, I read that m- – Uh, And correct me if I'm wrong. I read that more palm oil goes into fuel sources than it does everyday products. And also that given their CO2 and methane emissions, palm oil-based biofuels actually have three times the climate impact of traditional fossil fuels? Well, there there have been studies made. And I think this was one made by um, Transport and Environment. This is the group that came out with this three times thing. And you're going to find studies that are being done, but what you should understand is that we don't always factor in some of the externalities that go into a product. So, for example, the clearing of the land or then the burning and the, uh, the fuel that uh, – the, the, the gases that come off, um, all the other costs that are part of it but are externalized. And so – and apart from just what you just mentioned, you know, this idea that somehow – biofuel emissions are three times as bad as fossil fuel. From palm oil, because there's other biofuel emissions out there. Well, they they have also been criticized, whether it's soy or whatever. But certainly, this is an issue that needs to be looked at, because we thought of biofuels as the answer to fossil fuels, that it was a green alternative. But when you start looking deeper into the entire supply chain, and you realize there are other costs associated with it. It's not a straightforward answer. No, there's never a black or white decision. No, on if not. you use this product, you should use this product instead. What can people do to help in this situation? Is there a silver lining in all that we're talking about here? What is the responsibility that we can play in 
palm oil and palm oil production and uh, the production of indigenous cultures and the species in the Indonesia areas and Honduras and everywhere else? Well, I think there's a lot that we can do. I think it mainly focuses around the power of the purse and our, our shopping habits. If we can actually start to look at palm oil and other commodities. So I'm not just, I'd, I'd like to broaden it from palm oil, but I think palm oil is a great case, you know, in point that we should understand the, the complete life cycle. We should become more educated as consumers to dig deep into the, into the information and start looking at what are the problems, what are the true costs in what we're doing. And then what we ought to do is look deep into ourselves and say, well, how, do, how am I going to take action on this? Should I become a smart shopper? Should I like look at labels? Should I use these apps when I make my shopping decisions? Because a lot of times people will look for the cheapest thing on the shelf. You know, frankly, they may not be able to afford that exactly. product that's palm oil free. Exactly. And then when you don't know if a product has palm oil in it, contact the manufacturer. You know, on the bottle or the can, there may be a, a label that says, you know, this phone number or this website. Call them up and start doing your due diligence about it. If you really are serious about it, you, you, should, you should hold them accountable. And at the very least, if they have to have palm oil in their product because of its nature, then choose sustainable palm oil. But, you know, you may, if you don't get a good response, you may say, well, I'm just going to avoid this product and choose an alternative. Mm. But I think that's the most important thing we can do right now. How can we also, because some of us, you know, like, as you said, we don't have the ability to vote with our dollar. Uh, that's, you know, not a privilege that we all have. How can we also support the frontline communities outside of voting with our own dollar? Well, I think we can also be part of um, what many of the organizations are doing to raise awareness through petitions and through letter writing or campaigns of that sort, especially if there's something going on that we know about that we can help the local people by adding our voices. So just that kind of activity sometimes can make a big, big difference in a decision whether this project will go forward or not in a place like Indonesia. So again, understanding uh, what's going on by monitoring what the NGOs are doing that are involved in these countries, that will give the public on this side of the ocean the eyes and the ears that we can make some choices that will help out those folks on the other side of the ocean. And how do people find out more information about um, what you've been doing, the organization? You also have a couple books, right? A children's book as well? We have a couple of children's books, and I'm working on uh, the big book. But I think um, apart from Google searches, which is a great way of finding facts and looking at the, the amount of data, and there's so much information, both scholarly and in the public forum, uh, go to the organizations that are on the front lines doing this work. I mean, we're, we're there. TOP is there. Uh, that's the orangutanproject.org or uh, orangutanrepublic.org. Learn more. Uh, we have lots of information. And certainly uh, go beyond that as well. I, I recommend people look at a lot of different groups that are out there to get a breadth of information that can help them make good choices in what they do when they shop, or possibly even in the future, go over there and see with your own eyes what is happening. You know, we do eco-tours, both TOP and Orangutan Republic Foundation. I'll be doing one next year 
to see orangutans and to see the environmental impacts of palm oil and, and coal mining, for example. That's another issue, uh, mining, which is, which is another show, but it, it is also impacting habitat. And we mentioned earlier about the problem with um, migrating people, like the movement of, of the capital city of Jakarta. Yeah. Uh, it's actually going to be just the government offices moving, not the entire city. It'll be oh. perhaps <laughs> about a million people. Well, all these resources and more resources, more information that we, yes. we find to be useful will be available on our, our website at SoCal 350. Thank you, Dr. Gary Shapiro, president of Orangutan Republic Foundation and the Orangutan Project USA for being here with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Gary Shapiro, president of Orangutan Republic Foundation and Orangutan Project USA. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Palm Oil, the oily truth and what we can do. Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, well, you know what to do. Subscribe to our podcast, share the episodes, get that information out there, and help us continue our efforts by making a donation to the show at ecojusticeradio.org. You have been listening to Eco-Justice Radio, recorded at KPFK Los Angeles. A project of SoCal 350, the show can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at SoCal350.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack Eit, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by myself, Jessica Aldridge, from Adventures in Waste, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.